welcome to the Sunday Night Health Show podcast. Tonight on the podcast, we're talking about biosimilars, biologics, and metastatic breast cancer. Also, healing art journeys, TikTok taping trends for sleep, hearing loss in youth, and sexual standoffs. The Sunday Night Health Show podcast starts now. And now, Maureen's Health Headline. This is Maureen McGrath. Thanks so much for joining me this evening. I'm very excited about this first segment of the program. I am talking with Dr. Sandeep Sudev, who is a medical oncologist at the Ottawa Hospital Cancer Centre. And this week being Biosimilars Week, he's agreed to join me on the program and talk about biosimilars and the advancement that they're making in many cancer treatments. Good evening, Dr. Sudev. Good evening. Thank you so much for joining me. Um, really appreciate you coming on the program. First and foremost, we hear biologics, we hear biosimilars. What exactly is a biosimilar, and what makes it different from a biologic? That's a great question. So biologics have been around for a while. I mean, Canada was instrumental in developing some of the first ones, like insulin, of course, way back. But they're basically drugs that are, have to be made in living cells. They're usually fairly complex proteins, and they, they went from being about, you know, 1% or 2% of our expensive drug budget in the country a decade ago now to being about a third. Uh, there have been so many new advancements in the field using these complex drugs made in living cells uh, that they've really benefited patients across the spectrum, first in cancer, but now in many inflammatory bowel, skin diseases, etc. And biosimilars basically are the kind of uh, next-generation drugs that are sort of similar, almost the same, but they're made by subsequent companies to compete with the originator products in a way basically to bring down prices. So just like with pills, we have generics when patents run out. Uh, generics are chemicals made usually inexpensively in factories. With biologics, because they're made in living cells, the processes are very complicated and the regulatory approval and how we use them is a bit more complex. But it's a similar idea of another company coming along to try to make these breakthrough drugs uh, in a more competitive environment to bring down costs and improve access for our patients. And that's outstanding. That was my next question. Was what's the difference or the similarities between biosimilars and generic drugs? But they're actually kind of similar in the idea of them, I guess. Is that, would that be a fair statement? Yeah, so with generics, you know, the, the chemical structure loses its patent and anyone can copy it exactly. Um, and the copycat just has to show they're making the same amount in every tablet, for example, or every bag. But with a biosimilar, even though the patents may be gone and any company can try to replicate it, the actual process, what living cell they use, how they actually produce them in vats of cells, how they filter them, process them, uh, and they have, it's much more complex. And sometimes the way living cells modify a protein, the way the cells fold them up, the way they add sugars to them, can have meaningful changes in the biological properties, the effectiveness, the safety. So they're much more complex. That's why we don't consider them generics. We don't consider them identical. We call them biosimilars. And they have to be proven through very careful review to be equally effective and equally safe. And you've explained that quite nicely. Um, you mentioned a few things. Um, what are biosimilars used for? What, what types of medical conditions? Well, you know, initially they came out in cancer. I think cancer, um, because of the urgency of the disease, tends to be the forerunner for many new therapeutic advancements. Um, so back in about the late 90s, we saw developments of drugs uh, that came out for colon cancer, some that help to um, shrivel or affect the arteries that feed tumors, later on some in breast cancer and, and blood cancers. But thereafter, that technology became widely uh, used in inflammatory diseases by other specialists, for example, rheumatologists using them in rheumatoid arthritis, um, uh, psoriatic arthritis, dermatologists in psoriasis, now even ophthalmologists for ocular conditions. So they've really become quite widely used across various fields. Um, and then, you know, in cancer, we're developing much more new ones at a rapid pace. Uh, but those are kind of the breadth we see now. Cancer patients take them for often a relatively short time in their life. Uh, either they finish the treatment or it stops working 
Whereas for chronic inflammatory diseases, I remember in medical school, people with Crohn's disease, with rheumatoid arthritis, yeah. used to suffer. They were admitted to hospital, and these drugs have really been a breakthrough in their quality of life and, and long-term outcomes. And that is fantastic. And this week, Organon Canada recently launched a new biosimilar, Ontruzon. Tell me a little bit about Ontruzon and why that's so exciting for patients. Well, you know, the, the, the originator uh, drug was called Herceptin, and the real name is actually called Trastuzumab. And when that came out in about the late 90s and was widespread in use in about 2001 in Canada, it was probably the biggest breakthrough in breast cancer in you know, decades. It's a this monoclonal antibody, just like antibodies attack viruses or other targets. These proteins were actually designed to home in on a key protein called HER2, that is a driver that makes certain breast cancers tick and makes them very aggressive. And this antibody was able to bind to that like a cruise missile, shut it off, and dramatically improve the outcomes of what used to be the worst breast cancer, now in many ways is the best one because of how effective this biologic was. So Ontrunzad was co-developed initially with uh, Samsung internationally and is being launched in Canada by Organon. There are others also already available in Canada, other biosimilars. Uh, and it's basically their version of trastuzumab, uh, which has been shown to be, again, equally effective and safe. And, and so this is for people who are des- uh, diagnosed with metastatic breast cancer, for example, um, and, yeah, so and about, early about breast cancer. But that was a devastating diagnosis at one point. Yeah, and fit, only about 15 or 20% of breast cancers are driven by this HER2, this aggressive you know, protein. Uh, so for that particular subset, and we use it in people who have stage four that may have incurable disease to lengthen their lives for years, but also in people that have their cancer removed and are, are currently seemingly cancer-free, we use it for at least one year to dramatically reduce the risk that they would die of recurrence or spread later in life. And that's very important. So it's additional therapy, effectively. Biosimilars, biosimilars provide additional um, therapy, would that be um, is yeah, that basically yeah, what this is? You're right. You're right. They're, they're usually used in conjunction with chemotherapy, at least initially. But after the mm-hmm. chemo's done its job, the, 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 um, the biologic or biosimilar is continued often much longer term afterwards. And so a lot of people don't have access to these medications. As you mentioned, the original medication can be quite expensive. So has the price dropped significantly? Is there more access for people with metastatic breast cancer? Are they more able to access biosimilar medications? There is indeed. And you know, it's, it's not just Canada. I mean, there are countries without the luxury of having the, you know, the uh, funds that Canada has for cancer patients. There are countries now who didn't have access at all that now have access. Uh, we have patients perhaps we could only treat uh, once with these medicines that now we sometimes can reapply and, and use again. I think the biggest advantage in Canada is that by having more competitive biosimilars in the market, it has by two competition driven the price down so we can save money as a system. But more importantly, you know, because the cost of drugs is going up constantly, uh, it, we're lucky we're seeing a massive breakthrough of new medications across cancer. By having these savings in this particular kind of breast cancer and others with biosimilars, we can reinvest those, those funds to developing innovative medicines in other fields of oncology. So it helps you know, all cancer patients across the spectrum by being able to save money for our system. My guest is Dr. Sandeep Sadev. He's a medical oncologist at the Ottawa Hospital Cancer Center. He's joining me on the line, and we're talking about biosimilars and the benefits to metastatic breast cancer. This is fantastic news, Dr. Sadev, and thank you for so much for staying, me on, staying on the line with me. And you mentioned the advancements in metastatic breast cancer and other cancers and other inflammatory diseases. Um, are there any downsides to well, this you can, particular? You can imagine this whole class of therapy was such a, a breakthrough in oncology. Clinicians were understandably, and patients were a bit reluctant initially. You know, they were frightened of change. We had these fantastic medicines available, um, but there have not been downsides that we've seen. Largely, I think, because of the really careful regulatory review uh, in uh, Europe, America, Canada, to make sure that they were vetted carefully. Uh, much more thoroughly than you vet a generic pill, for example. So we have demonstrated that within very tight boundaries, 
The medicines are equally effective in the test tube and animal models in people. We see very similar response rates, how often tumors shrink, how long the, the control of the cancer lasts for, and we've not seen any difference in terms of side effects. So practically speaking, oncologists that were maybe hesitant about seven years ago uh, now have widely adopted these and are very comfortable with them. This is fantastic. And if there's somebody out there listening who's recently been diagnosed with metastatic breast cancer or metastatic gastric cancer, what would you say to them about this biosimilar that's been launched this week by Organon Canada on Truzent? I think the main advantage to them is that, it, again, it, it, it enhances the scope of medicines we can provide them throughout their disease trajectory. Um, they would have had trastuzumab already without the uh, the new biosimilar, uh, without Antruzent, uh, but this way they're you know getting very effective treatment, uh, but they're also saving our system funds that can be reinvested because when their disease progresses, we now have second and third options for treatment for that kind of breast cancer we didn't have until the last year or so. And they're even more expensive than, you know, by having the savings at this level, we can then reinvest in further treatments to help them long-term. I mean, it's, it's such exciting news. It's so great. I mean, somebody who maybe, you know, a couple of years ago would have been diagnosed with metastatic breast cancer or metastatic gastric cancer now has so much more hope today with biosimilar medications such as Ontruzant, um, which is incredible. Dr. Sadev, thank you so much for joining me on the program. I really appreciate you coming on and talking about this extremely important um, research and innovation and um, launch this week, um, so important for people out there listening who are devastated when they get this type of diagnosis. But, but this gives hope. Ontruzent gives hope to a lot of people out there. It was a pleasure. Thank you for involving me. My next guest is a renowned artist and author. She's used her art to inspire people and to help people heal. Her latest book, Luminous, an artist's story as a guide to radical creativity is a culmination of her artistic career and includes over 120 images of her evotic, evocative paintings. Her art has been compared to Emily Carr. It's also a very healing book. And her book includes exercises to help bring folks in touch with their inner artist. She is none other than Linda Diane Freimer. Good evening, Linda. Hi there, Maureen. Thank you so much for joining me on the program. I have the book on my lap. <laughs> it Thank is, you so much for inviting just, me. Oh my gosh, I'm honored to have you. It is a magnificent book. I've never seen anything like it in my entire life. I received it about a week, week and a half ago. I, I'd been traveling, so I got it a couple of days. I, I arrived a few days after it did. But um, it's going to take me a while to go through, to absorb all of it, enjoy all of it. I mean, to benefit from all of it. To, it it's just outstanding. Everything between the the quotes, the uh, you know, of many wise people and your art is magnificent and your memoir, your history. Um, I mean, I, I just don't even know. How long did this take you to do? <laughs> so I, so I've been working on this book um, since I turned 50 years old, 25 years ago. And it's oh my goodness. And it was, uh, I tried to put it aside at times because it, um, it was a, a, an emotional and a really uh, big journey. But I found that so much that I was involved in, so many of my experiences were really feeding and nurturing others, and uh, that art was a way to unify in a world that is experiencing more and more chaos. So I couldn't put it aside, and um, I finally completed it just this year. It's it's just unbelievable, and I know we. I wish we had. I, I mean, I haven't had enough time, obviously, to go through all of it, but I will. But you know, I can imagine it's going to so take me some some time. No, it's magnificent. The the bit, every single bit that I've read and and viewed, it, it's gorgeous. Um, so your story starts <clears throat> back in the wilderness town, growing up in the wilderness town of Wells, British Columbia. How did that help you to become an artist? Well, I was born in the wilderness town of Wells and only spent my first years there. 
but um, when I was a little girl, I was uh, I overheard stories in my home about um, the Holocaust and about suffering and the, and the persecution of people and of war. And I would run to the forest, and I found that the forest was always welcoming me. There was no prejudice, no walls there. It was a very safe haven. And I would continue to go to the forest. I find that, that we must nurture ourselves in nature and that nature accepts everybody. We're all welcome. And it's full of light and energy and color. When I'd close my eyes, I'd imagine tree trunks of turquoise and fuchsia and mauve and incredible love, lovely colors. And when I'd open them, those colors would still be there. So color became very important to me early in my life. And I found that nature was always just an incredibly healing force. It certainly is. I was at somebody's um, house today and they'd actually set up, it was in the city and they'd actually set up, you know, a, a virtual jungle basically of plants and, you know, oh. just this oasis. And they'd actually put their desk in there because they're working from home. Um, and, and it was magnificent. You know, nature certainly does have healing powers. What was the inspiration for writing Luminous? The inspiration was um, twofold. First of all, I have always loved stories, and I think stories are another way to heal. When we hear each other's stories on an intimate level, we can't possibly have prejudice about an individual or a group of people that are... Um, have their own similar stories. And so I wanted to know more of my own ancestors' stories and could only go back to the mid-1800s because of so much loss through pogrom and persecution. And I thought, I want my grandchildren and the generations to come to know my story and as much of the tales of the ancestors that I possibly can gather. I want them to have this. The other thing, and it was a compelling force, was the fact that my art was really helping people. I was helping save forests through working with Paul George of the Wilderness Committee and the Rain Coast Environmental Foundation. I was helping save the salmon. I was finding ways where I could contribute through art. And then I did incredible projects where I worked with um, amazing human beings. George Littlechild, First Nations artist, and I created a book in honor of our grandmothers, working with two poets, Lisa Schneider and Gary Godfrey. And that was a wonderful melding of cultures where we didn't take anything from each other, but just shared reverence between two nations. And it also was a very healing book because people who had intermarried um, interculturally um, were able to pick up this book and see how beautifully this can work in this world and that we all are equal. We may be several different nations, but on so many levels, we are one voice. And there's just one other thing, the Gesha Project, um, many other things, because people, I started using photographs um, in my work, and I did a work for a Holocaust survivor uh, when I had a dream where I wanted to use a real yellow star. She actually brought huh? me her own yellow star from the Holocaust, and with it, a letter she'd written to her wow. mother who perished over 50 years earlier. Oh, my goodness. And so um, I did a work of art where she came to my studio and actually wrote her letter into my painting. And I saw, at the end, she, she said, I was a good daughter, and she wept in my arms. And I have her words, which were, Phenomenal. The um, work actually went, um, posters went to the Holocaust Museum in Washington, D.C. because of the work that Renya Peril and I did together. And so I took this further and worked with um, the generations of the Holocaust. Um, there was a silence between them, between the survivors who didn't want to inflict their pain on their children or grandchildren, mm -hmm. and, and also with the child survivors. And so um, I worked with an amazing psychologist, Alina Woodrow, a writer, incredible writer, Dale Adams Siegel, and also a phenomenal um, coordinator, Lisa Schneider, again. And we were able to become like one voice, again, taking down barriers between our disciplines 
and we really did an amazing project where we helped the survivors tell their stories. Um, I'm talking a lot, but I wanted to get that all out. It's okay. And I can tell you how we did the <laughs> stories, if you'd like to hear how, um, how I was able to help them. Um, I, I, I certainly on? would love to. I, I, I'd love to hear that, but I, I also am curious about the term, and it may have something to do with the healing. Um, how do you define radical creativity? Um, Which is your, your book, Luminous, yeah. is yeah. an artist's story as a guide to radical creativity, to remind wow. the listeners. Sure. Um, to be um, creative means really to bring something new into creation. And what does it mean to be radically creative? It means to bring something new, like just like creating a spark that it comes from your deepest root of yourself, from deep emotions. There are many um, art movements and artists through the generations who employed radical action, radical creativity in response to war and suffering and, and poverty and all kinds of issues. But it, art is itself a radical action. And I think um, each of us mm -hmm. is the artist of our own story. The way we create it, um, we always we will touch upon radical creativity whenever we feel deeply and are able to find a way to express our feelings. Mm -hmm. Very interesting. You don't think of it like that. Now, you did want to talk about how you did help well, thank those you. people <laughs> to heal. Yes. Well, it's, I don't think you can ever heal the Holocaust or, or tragic, deep abysses of suffering, but you can bring positive healing energy to these um, terrible events. Um, what I, my part was to take tattered, little tattered photographs from the past, uh, from um, families that were united before this happened, and also some that were right in the middle of the Holocaust. And I uh, um, enlarged them on fiber-based paper, and then I worked with survivors to help them. And some of them in our project did it on their own, but I helped um, several by painting with them to help tell their stories. We would add words and images into the photographs, and then I had them all create a border that was um, like a, a, a five, uh, four-inch border around each piece to unify the whole exhibit, where I helped them to access personal symbols for their works of art. And so um, that's, that was the way, that was the way I um, was able to do, I was able to do this. Um, I'm sorry, my doorbell just went, and I I just opened it for a friend, but I'm I'm continuing on. I apologize. Um, <laughs> I, okay. I did. She, I I told everyone, but um, uh, that I would be in the interview. Sorry, and so then um, don't worry. Um, I so the um, I could read you something from that because it's really amazing. My guest is the author, creator, really artist of Luminous, an artist story as a guide to radical creativity, Linda Diane Primer. Linda is still in the line, thank goodness. Hi, Linda. Hi there. So Marie. you were going to read a passage from yeah. your book? Yes, I, right. I have so much to share. I just wanted to preface it with the fact that when I was a little girl, it was wonder, the awe of the beauty of nature that really affected me most profoundly. And then it was able, I found that nature was able to comfort me after that, but it was the light in the forest and just um, the awesomeness of it that affected me first. Mm -hmm. I am sure. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so you don't I'm think ready. of light in forests, but anyway, go ahead. Yeah, it, it certainly the, is. You know the way the light filters on pathways through the yes. trees? That, that That's magnificent. That. Mm -hmm. Yes. Absolutely. So um, I will read about uh, Francis Hoyd, uh, one of the survivors. Uh, Francis Hoyd, upon seeing the small, somewhat tattered photograph of herself, her brother and her mother, which she had held on to for over 50 years, now dramatically enlarged and placed on watercolor paper, 
ran from the art room in tears. This is the first time I've cried in over 50 years, she told me when I followed. Frances had lost her mother in the first moments after they arrived in Auschwitz when she was sent on the pathway to life and her mother on the other. I'm afraid now, she said. I don't know how to paint. I will ruin this image, and it's all I have left of them. Frances, I'll hold your hand, and we'll paint together. What is your favorite color? I mixed up the decided royal blue watercolor and held her hand so that we painted the background around her family's portrait together. The next day, Frances arrived at my home studio door. I must finish the painting before I kick the bucket, she said. Apprehensive. Oh, oh, pardon me. Frances chose carnations as a symbol to border her artwork because her husband George had given her carnations for every special occasion. I made a stencil of a carnation and Frances painted them in white all around the border of her image except for three carnations which she painted in red to express the loss of her mother, her brother, and her husband. Apprehensive of working on her image in the beginning, by its end, Frances fearlessly wrote these words into the mixed-media artwork of her family. This is my mother, Sarita, and my brother, Pista, who both perished in the Holocaust. Until my last breath on this earth, I will miss them with all of my heart. Even after she had completed her painting in my studio, Frances would stop by often. Honey, she would say, I just wanted to give you a hug. One time while I was recovering from an accident, my daughter answered the doorbell and was handed a bouquet of red and white carnations with the message, she will know who they are from. Wow, that's amazing. That gives me chills. That's just incredible. Frances was Go the most astonishing person. Um, I Would you like me to read another shorter one, or would you like to speak a little more about the work? You know, I just, um, I we only have a few minutes left, unfortunately. Oh, okay. The sure. time goes by twice as fast on radio. Um, but yeah. I, I, so I didn't want to forget to ask you a, qu- a couple of things. Where can you people get the book? And But also, what advice would you give to budding artists, and how does your book help them to unlock their own creativity? Well, the book is designed, it's layered, and it goes deeper and deeper um, so that people can actually access. It almost takes you to your own essence, to what's important, and we're all the same at our essence. And it's, it's a work that really seeks to unify what we can together in creation. Um, the book also has chapters on colors and teaches color mixing and the history and story of color, how it relates to each of us personally and culturally. And my family's story from the mid-1800s follows the artists through the years and what they did that was radical in creativity and how they expressed their emotions in response to what was happening to society at their time. So I think it kind of mirrors a lot. And it has exercises throughout the whole book. So it's an interactive book. There's little doves. I draw doves every day. And so they're little doves that um, are either what some of the great artists did, that if they're taken to um, a form where everyone can do this, but what they did that you can do and also exercises to help ex- access your own creativity. And I think the most important thing I could say is to play like the child that you have inside of you, the child within. Learn to just uh, forget all the the adult values and judgment and remember how you used to play so freely and without memory because I think if we can get back to playing with how things feel rather than how they appear we'll be creating real art absolutely and where can people buy this beautiful book Um, it's available at Indigo throughout Canada um, and also online Um, I'm not sure. Uh, it, it will be also at the Jewish Community Center where I will be speaking on the 27th at 3 p.m. at the book fair there. So in in Vancouver. Yes, in Vancouver, Maureen. Uh, Maureen, I just want to say that you have such a fine reputation, and I'm so grateful to be able to speak with you. Um, you're, you're just wonderful. You're too kind. 
<laughs> well, it's been my honor to speak with you. And this book is such an in-depth, um, beautifully crafted artistic book. And I'm going to have to have you back on to talk about it again. Uh, so Thank you. Delve- you got questions? She's got answers. The Nurse is in for Nurse Talk. Welcome to the second hour of the Sunday Night Health Show. Marie McGrath here hosting this program for you. We've got lots going on in the second hour. Um, we're going to be talking very shortly. We're going to be talking about this crazy TikTok trend and then also about hearing loss in young people. Not something that you would think would happen, but there's a number of, of reasons why. Also going to be talking about sexual standoffs. I see it all the time in my clinical practice and, uh, and in fact, it's often the reason people come and see me. And virtually, that is, these days. You can thank the pandemic for that. Uh, also going to be talking about Sjogren's syndrome. So lots to talk about on the program, uh, the second half of the program tonight. And thank you all so much for joining me. I, I always appreciate it. And if you have any questions uh, or any comments, feel free to call Leo, and he'll put you through to me, or text the number to call or text, of course, is one 399 9898 That's 1-877-399-9898. Okay, so here we are. Um, you have heard her voice before. She is the real deal. She's a medical doctor in wellness and performance. She empowers lawyers, doctors, other professionals, workers, anyone employed to help reduce burnout and overwhelm so that they can increase their productivity in the workplace. She's all about leverage-based leadership. She's a speaker, trainer, and a writer. She is none other than Dr. Tomi Mitchell. Good evening, Dr. Mitchell. Good evening. How are you? How are you? How are you doing? I'm well. I'm doing well. Perfect. Excellent. Excellent. Okay. So we've got a few things to talk about. These are, these are real health issues that are, you know, rearing their ugly heads, if you will, through Instagram and TikTok and even Facebook. Um, we saw what Facebook did to the pandemic and the misinformation that was spread rapidly um, yes. throughout the pandemic, you know, really endangering people's health. And so there's a new trend on TikTok that is about that people swear by it, but it can be dangerous. And that is taping yeah. one's mouth closed so that they can sleep better. Tell me, doctor, yes. <laughs> what are your thoughts yeah. on this? <laughs> TikTok. I don't know. Another case of a wannabe health professional who's viewing dangerous material. Um, this is another example of a Band-Aid literally being put on the problem. In this case, it's tape. And it's potentially extremely dangerous and completely missing the underlying causes of why this person might be having the problems in the first place. So how often do we hear a TikTok challenge and someone ends up dead or in the hospital? Like, this is ridiculous, but this is the world we live in. So we have to address this topic. And we certainly do. And so why are people taping? And now, and I, I also just got, when you said a Band-Aid, you know, next thing they're going to be selling you know, sleep aids or sleep band-aids, <laughs> <laughs> designing yep. them. Just another, just another oh, uh, opportunity for me not to make a million dollars. Anyway, mm-hmm. <laughs> someone else, someone is going to do this. They're going to design these sleeping with S's or something or Z's on them. And you're to use that. But why are people taping their mouth? I think some people on TikTok should be taping their mouth shut. But anyway, why are people Thank taping you. their mouth shut before going to bed? It's they want to stop snoring, perhaps. Like I, I don't know to stop mouth breathing. Like they, people are sleeping with their mouth open. Probably it's an annoyance to them or their partner. So they figure, well, we'll just shut the problem with the tape on it, and that will solve the problem. And uh-huh. that's because it is better to breathe through your nose when you're sleeping. One hundred percent, because the nose has the filters. It's designed to we're created to breathe through our nose for sure. It has the cilia in there, so it actually decreases the risk of infection. And also, mm-hmm. when you sleep with your mouth hanging open, A, it's not really that attractive. Nope. <laughs> um, but forget that that aside, I'm not that shallow. Um, but it also leads to dry mouth and dry lips and bad breath and 
you know, so it can, it can actually have some um, negative effects when you're 100%. Um, yeah, sleeping with your mouth wide open. I, I've been known to do it. Let me tell you. <laughs> I can get and exhausted. We all have at uh, some point. We all do, right? It's, you know, but it's when it becomes a daily problem, then that could be pathologic, right? Ex- absolutely. And so what is one of the real dangers, especially as it relates to sleep apnea, um, you know, for people who decide all of a sudden they feel that their problem is their mouth breathers at night and they don't you know, they might have another problem. What are some of the yeah. dangers of that? Well, you mentioned a common illness called sleep apnea, obstructive sleep apnea, where the airways partially or completely um, collapse and people get the snoring, but that's just a superficial like problem. When you're not breathing properly, you don't get enough oxygen to your brain, which can lead to high blood pressure, strokes, daytime dizziness, you know, falling asleep at the wheel, aggravation, low mood, depression, not to mention like, trouble with your sleeping partner. But, but again, it's a significant issue that can lead, contribute to heart disease and other killers that are affecting people. And, you know, the sad thing is because we have sleep apnea is related to, you know, carrying extra weight and lifestyle and to some part the anatomy of a person which you can't really change. Um, it's becoming more and more of a problem. So people are turning to their TikTok influencers, right? Or solutions instead uh-huh. of going to their healthcare providers. But again, that's another story entirely because people are saying we're hard uh-huh. to reach. So it's like, it's this whole um, quagmire of where are people getting like credentialed information? You know, I think a couple of weeks ago we were talking about how I think it's YouTube was going to start verifying sources in, I think it's uh-huh. just in the U S and Germany, but like, this is really dangerous. Like I, Sleep apnea is serious. Like it, it really is. You can your heart can become enlarged and floppy and just not function properly. It can lead to heart failure. It can lead to so many things, and it's becoming more and more common. And you know, according uh-huh. to the I think the Lancet, it's like over a billion people between thirty and sixty nine have this condition. That's a billion people. It's only one eight million on Earth. So that's a lot of people. Absolutely. Right? Um, it is. And so many people are undiagnosed. And, and you, you mentioned so much here. You mentioned about, you know, people not having access to physicians and medical providers. You also, you know, alluded to the fact that, you know, a lot of people want a quick fix. They have a problem. Yeah. Where do they go? Instagram, TikTok, yeah. Facebook, yeah. Um, you know, to, you know, for people who are just looking for followers and people who are going to, in hopes that they get sponsorship, that's what TikTok and Instagram is all about for the uncredentialed, you know, and, yes. and you see them promoting things like red light therapy for vaginal oh. health. It does not work. It's crazy oh. for anybody who thinks oh, that right. that's going to work. Um, oh, yeah. You know, you see all of these ridiculous trends on there and, you know, you can go and spend $300 on a red light probe and put it up your vagina if you like. Um, but it's a complete waste of money. You get a lot more satisfaction out of ripping one dollar bills up and throwing them in the toilet for that matter. <laughs> um, it's just unbelievable. I know there's just, I, I, I don't understand, you know, people are intelligent, they're smart, but they're, they're also desperate. And maybe that's why they are looking to try this. And of course there's always the placebo effect. Anything they try, especially if they pay for it, it's going to work. Yes. And you know, speaking of desperation, right. a lot of the people who are doing this are young people who often are on their parents' insurance plans or who have access, like they can access this, but they become so numb to TikTok. They think it's just, oh, it's just TikTok. It's like the Bible. It's like their guide, right? It's, it's misguided. It's worse than Dr. Google, frankly. Like this is a whole new level of just keeping it's up a, with ignorance and just trying to educate uh-huh. people and, for, you know, just, no, this is, sleep apnea is a serious condition. It is treatable. And there are... There's a straightforward test you can have done to see if you have it. And in many provinces, it's free to get screened. It is free. There are so many sleep clinics that your doctor can, or walk-in doctor can make a referral for you, and away you go. So please, when you're tempted Uh to listen to the next person on these platforms, think twice. Like, look at their credentialing. Look at their experience. 
what's it in for them? Like me and you talking, we're talking because we care about these topics, right? No one is paying millions of dollars to me. I'm sorry, you. Absolutely. And if we can share in, no, I'm not getting it either. In fact, I'm paying people. Me too. I feel like it always costs me. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Tell me about your podcast. Yeah. Oh, sorry. It's a mental health and wellness show. So it's a weekly podcast and it's, I chunk it up into seasons. I think this past one was on like challenging relationships and I'll be talking about burnout and parenting. Actually, parenting was the one on, I actually have it on auto because I pre-recorded a lot of content which is a good thing because life got crazy. Uh-huh. But yeah, it's me talking with experts in the field and we talk real and no, you know, no filter, just real, no sugar coating to help people like speak to learn more. It's called the mental health and wellness show. So that's what I do on the side. It's fun, but I mean, it's Excellent. like this, it's educating people, like hoping and praying that we make a difference in people's lives every time they tune in. My guest is Dr. Tomi Mitchell. She's the real deal. She's a medical doctor in wellness and performance. Thanks so much for staying on the line, Dr. Mitchell. I want to talk to you about a excellent uh, study um, that shows 1 billion young people are at risk for, for hearing loss. Why is this? One would never expect young people to be at risk of hearing loss, but the world has changed, hasn't it? (laughs) <laughs> yeah, young people only between the age of 12 and 34. So that's a really narrow window, right? That's a billion. Again, mm-hmm. another study where it's a billion people. It's because of headphone and earbuds use, like unsafe use, right? People blasting their mm-hmm. music or really loud concerts, just continuous noise. It, it is continuous. You know, you see people walking down the street and they have their earbuds in. You know, I try not to make a habit of that because, first of all, I like to hear, you know, I'm often in a rush and I don't want to get hit by a car. <laughs> it's Thank sort you. of my main exactly. reason, but it just, it's just not something that I actually do. I never really got into that habit. But, um, and I don't necessarily wear two earbuds either. I'll wear one and switch the ears up. But, but as you said, unsafe listening practices and, and the, you know, the music is so loud or, you know, whatever they're listening to is so loud. And also going to concerts is another um, reason that was cited in this UNC study um, uh, about, about um, hearing loss. So we're going to, that's going to bring, bring a whole host of new troubles into relationships. Um, You might not want to hear your, might not want to hear your partner. So that's okay. Um, (laughs) And also in the workplace, as well learning and, and just life in general yeah. yeah learning at yeah. school yeah cognition you know mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. you know brain health is so important for cognition yeah so yeah. how do we get tiktok influencers <laughs> to educate about this uh, very good question i think this is the thing i challenge with healthcare. um Many of us are knowledgeable, right? I was actually looking on LinkedIn earlier. Someone was saying how healthcare professionals stick in their lane. If they're a cardiologist, they should only talk about uh-huh. cardiologists, which is kind of just kind of dangerous because there's many of us who are like lifelong learners, like you and I, who talk about multiple areas, right? We need people who are uh-huh. like confident and bold enough to actually speak up because it's not everyone's jam to get on social media. So how do we... Exactly. We just have to keep on talking, Maureen. I think we just have to, you know, just keep on magnifying our voice and amplifying and those who, you know, want to join, like, come and speak and speak the truth because somebody has to. We have to be that voice in this crazy wilderness because, uh, I'm sorry, there's just so much damaging material coming on social media and TikTok is popular in that demographic. Like, it's not so much, like, not so much my demographic and yours, but definitely... The younger generation, I'm, I'm, you know, the Gen Zs and the Gens, whatever they are, like it's the, the twelve scary. to thirty-four. Yeah. The um, exactly. and just a couple of tips before we go. We only have about a minute. Um, so, okay. any particular tips to help people preserve their hearing? Yes. If you can't hear someone talking next to you while your headsets are on, it's too loud. Okay. And okay. Try to make, right, take a habit of not wearing them. You don't, if you're in your house and it's just you, there's no reason to wear them. Just mm-hmm. put, a, put it on speaker, right? Or 
try not listening. Maybe read instead of an audio book. I don't know. Just just be aware of it. And there's also there's apps you can find on your phone that will let you know if mm-hmm. you're if the sound is too loud. And when in doubt, get a hearing assess- assessment. That's right. Assessment. That's really what I would recommend. Yeah, for- yeah, for sure. The, those, those decibel meter apps are also very good and they're very easily accessible. And also when people go to concerts, not the best idea to um, be right near the speakers as well. And, exactly. and also, you know, taking a break. Yeah, taking a break from the yeah. music and, and maybe popping in some some um, earplugs as well. You might want to do 100%. that in your relationship too. <laughs> if you don't want to hear your par- your partner. <laughs> I'm exactly. kidding. Anyway. <laughs> oh, there's some truth to that, Mark. Um, we know there is. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, well, yeah. Dr. Mitchell, thank you so much. Really appreciate your time this evening. Oh, and um, yeah, nice to learn about your podcast as well. Oh, my pleasure. Anytime. We'll just keep on sharing the truth, right? For sure. We'll talk to you next week. All right. Sounds thank good. you so thank much. Thank you, darling. It's time for The Bedroom Bulletin. Welcome back to the show. Thanks so much for tuning in this evening. Very important segment of the show coming up right now. (laughs) The intimate, the intimacy, the connection, the trust, the sex, basically. I see a lot of people, probably, probably this is the most common reason people come to see me for sexual health issues anyway, is the sexual standoff, what I call the sexual standoff. And it's two people who have been together for a while, maybe two years to 32 years, and they have the exact same issue and they are fighting about it. There's a lack of sex in the relationship and it is damaging the relationship. And I hear lots of different things from everything from, I don't need sex. I don't want sex. And I told him he could go and have sex with anybody that he wants. But people say that they don't necessarily mean it. And it also comes with a whole host of problems. An open relationship is not without potentially adverse events. You know, there needs to be some rules around it. And, um, and so it's often said in anger and frustration. So, Um, this is, you know, from couples who are thinking about getting married when they're in basically a sexist relationship. And that is defined by the experts as sex less than 10 times a year to people who have been together and want to stay together, but they just don't want to have sex. And it has been years for some people. I mean, 10, 15 years. I had a patient who was a farmer. He said it had been about 15 years and and he would have considered going outside of the relationship, but there was nobody around. He didn't have a neighbor for like 20 miles or something. And, you know, so it's, it's very, very damaging in a relationship and, and why fighting about sex and sexual frequency usually signals that a couple are no longer on the same page emotionally or physically. So not wanting to be intimate with one another signals a huge problem. And, you know, oftentimes people want to bury this. At least one person in the relationship wants to bury the aspect. They don't want to talk about it. They don't want to deal with it. And one of the couple usually reaches out to me because they can't take it anymore. They don't know what to do. They have some big time decisions to make in their life. They want to find out why. And they feel terrible about it because rejection hurts. Whether you've been with somebody for five minutes or five years, denying you sex is one of those multifaceted, multidisciplinary trips to a bruised ego. It is downright hurtful because you have to wonder, why don't they want you? Uh, Oftentimes people will say, especially younger couples in my clinical practice will think, um, or I might point it out to them, if this doesn't change, this is your life for the next 30, 40, 50, 60 years. Um, This is not going to change. Um, and so you have to wonder what's wrong with you. Are you not good enough? Are you not good looking enough? Are you not pretty enough? Are you not sexy enough? Not wild or interesting enough in the sack? What is it? And, you know, especially if you've had a relationship where it has been sexual, where, where the intimacy has not been an issue. The other aspect of this is if your sex life is an expression of your love for each other, and now you're not having it, 
what does that say about the fate of your relationship? Where's that expression of love? And these kinds of questions and, and also the thought that I'm looking at the next, I'm, you know, as one gentleman said to me, you know, I'm, I'm thinking of marrying this person and, um, you know, but it's a sexless relationship and I, I really don't want to marry this person if this is my fate. And so, you know, these ideas, these thoughts can plague your brain and kill your self-esteem. And, and it's also very confusing and it's very difficult. And one of the most common reasons that young couples are sexless and, you know, in their twenties and even thirties is that's when careers and babies start. And, you know, so many people, a lot of people are making a lot of big money these days and they are working for it. You know, they are working, I mean, so many hours a day, one, um, couple, he said he felt guilty. He didn't even say good night anymore to his girlfriend because it was midnight and she was still working and he felt badly saying good night. But, you know, you can't work from six in the morning until after midnight, you know, several days in a row and actually have expect to have sexual desire. You're exhausted and, and fatigue is the number one reason for low sexual desire. So what happens oftentimes when these couples come to me is that they, they just break down. I mean, they, one gets so extremely frustrated about the fact that their partner is pressuring them for sex. And it's not necessarily just the women who have low sexual desire, but I will say it is more common in women, but men have low sexual desire as well. If they're in a, in, if they're in a heterosexual relationship and a man doesn't want to have sex with a woman, it can hurt 10 times as much because the you know, this, the conventional wisdom is that all men want is sex and that's not necessarily true. And that's actually very ignorant to have that thought, but you know, men want intimacy, connection and touch and, and as do women as well. So there's a lot of misunderstanding about uh, sexual desire in both, but you know, I have couples just screaming at each other. Um, one, because the person is pressuring them to have sex and the other is because the person never wants to have sex or just wants to cut it off after, you know, cut the relationship off, the sex relationship off, not the relationship. They want to stay in the relationship. This is the thing. They want to stay with the person. They just don't want to be intimate anymore. But oftentimes there's a number of underlying problems, especially medical problems that are going on that are preventing people from being sexual, being intimate, wanting to have sex, being desirous of sex, enjoying sex, wanting to have a, wanting to experience an orgasm. Some people are just like, oh, just forget it. I just serve, service the other person. I'm, I'm not even interested in self-pleasure you know, or, or, or pleasure for me. So it, it is a big problem in a lot of relationships, which is why I did the TEDx talk in 2016. I think it's had close to 32 million views. And which tells you this is a problem and we need solutions to this problem. And, and, you know, I'll start with, first of all, um, instructing my clients or, or patients, if you will, clients, um, not to play the blame game. So I usually start that out immediately. Like, I don't want to hear she does this, he does that. Um, they do this, they do that, that putting the blame, shifting the blame from oneself. So one of the things is, is name five things that you yourself are responsible for as it relates to the sexlessness of your marriage. Is that a word? Um, anyway, it, why is your marriage sexless and what is your responsibility to that? Um, it might've been that somebody's had an affair. It, that'll lower sexual desire on by your partner. Um, it might have been that you have untreated vaginal dryness and painful sex. That'll lead to low sexual desire. It can be that you are being bullied at work and, or you're, you're just putting in so many hours a day and not setting healthy limits and boundaries. That'll actually lower sexual desire as well. So there's so many reasons, but only, you know, those reasons and you know, those reasons and, and no, nobody else knows those reasons. And oftentimes the partner, even though this couple has been living together for a while and, you know, loving each other and caring about each other and paying bills together and raising kids, they don't know each other. And so they assume things and they assume all of these things and say, 
this, my partner does this, this, and this, and this is why we haven't had sex for two years. But that's not necessarily the case. So one very good exercise is to write down five reasons and then share those reasons with your partner. It can be very, very um, eye-opening and revealing and very helpful as well. But whether or not you're getting enough sex or you feel like your partner is being way too pushy about getting some, you both need to take a step back. You got to stop fighting about sex with your partner. And if you want to stop, stop fighting about sex with your partner, you have to have a clear head. It can be very difficult to remove yourself from the situation and look at it with unbiased eyes, but you got to give it a try. You know, a lot of women feel like their partners in my clinical practice recently that their partners are bugging them for sex. And a lot of men feel the same as well. But when was the last time you actually had it? You have to be honest with yourself as well. Is your circumstance really that dire? Or are you just being a little bit selfish? So for example, there are certain times in life when people just can't have sex. Um, I had a couple who the woman had untreated vaginismus. And so that needed to be treated. And so the pressure has to come off. And it actually hadn't been that long since the couple had had sex. But um, there was a particular circumstance that had led to this recent diagnosis of vaginismus, but there is treatment for that. So if you haven't had sex for a couple of days, this is by no means to be considered your little hunger strike. Um, relationships go through ups and downs. There are times when in the bedroom, things are much more active. And then there are times when they're not that active. And so be patient and just try and be understanding about what your partner is going through. It's also important to communicate. Don't complain about your sexual needs. So as I said, do not blame your partner for their sexual inexperience, their low libido, their lack of giving you an orgasm it's only going to discourage them from trying again with you. You want to communicate about your sexual needs and talk openly about how often you need to have sex and you need to come to a compromise and you have to, you know, get real. You have to put it on the table in order to understand what the problem is so that the problem can be fixed. And you want to get to the emotional issues. You know, if you want to find out why your sex life has, has dropped off significantly, you need to do some soul searching. You know, did you have an incredible bang in sex life when you first met and then something traumatic happened? I mean, that, that happens quite often. For example, if you were assaulted or you, you feel your mate betrayed you in a, in a huge way and infidelity does that. Even I had a couple who, um, one of the couple was flirting with somebody in front of their partner and it was a previous boyfriend, I think, anyway, that they hadn't seen for, you know, 20 years. Anyway, and so they felt very upset by that. Nothing happened. They felt very upset. And then the, the partner felt guilty. And, you know, I mean, I mean, we're talking flirting here. So, you know, but but everybody has their boundaries and everybody has their deal breakers. Um, so, you know, sometimes, you know, you might just feel emotionally distant from your partner. And emotional distance is not a great recipe for romance. So you want to get down to those emotional issues that are preventing you from having a healthy sex life with your partner. And that is all about communication, communication, communication. And so the other thing is if, you know, it's, I always say it's very important for couples who are in a relationship to deal with the physical aspects of their lives because they can, that, that can impact their sex life. So if you're having menopause issues, vasomotor symptoms, vaginal dryness, fatigue, brain fog, if you've gained weight and you're having body image issues or because you've gone through surgery, um, you know, maybe your partner said something about your body or your performance in bed, you know, so you've got to you know, deal with those. There are treatments for those that can actually up your sexual desire. So, you know, you don't want to freeze your partner out of the bedroom. You want to open up, talk about new and fun ways that you can get together, but also deal with the underlying issues, deal with those medical problems because they, a sexual health issue is often a sign of an underlying medical health issue. And once you've dealt with all of that and then some, you know, you want to might maybe play 
some fun sex quizzes. So that's one good way to stop fighting about sex and start having more of it is to talk about it. Look up, you know, fun, would you rather quizzes or lists of sexy questions you can ask your partner. You know, these are all silly, but they're fun and they'll get the conversation going about sex flowing in a casual, lighthearted manner instead of awkwardly tiptoeing around each other or trying to avoid the hug or embrace of your partner because you're afraid they'll expect it to lead to something else. Anyway, those quizzes might teach you a thing or two about your partner. And hopefully you've learned a thing or two here. Thanks for listening to the Sunday Night Health Show podcast. You can subscribe, rate, or review on your favorite podcast app. And if you've got a question about your health, the nurse is always in. So email me, nursetalk at hotmail.com, and I just might answer your question anonymously, of course, on next week's show. For now, have a happy and healthy week.